life is hard. And even when you know that you should be following your heart and listening to your intuition, it's easy to drop into default mode and keep playing it safe. If you want to get a little daily nudge to follow your heart and take more leaps of faith and believe more in yourself, you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration. You'll join tens of thousands of other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote each day that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself. Okay, back to the show. I came back and I was processing this breakup and trying to figure out like, how do I get the fuck out of here? And I would like go outside. My parents lived in a suburb and I would just like shake and do these practices. And they just thought I was crazy. Like there were actual talks about sending me to a mental institute, not even joking. And they were worried that something happened to my brain. And (laughs) that's why I'm like this. And at that point, I was just like, certain that I'm not going to get the job and take the path that they want. But I, again, didn't have the, I was just like, I'm going to get this Ayurveda book off the ground. It's going to happen. And they're like, you've been saying this for two years and it hasn't happened yet. So I remember a specific fight with my dad and my dad, because he was so afraid of me taking this pathway that would potentially end me up in a mental asylum or homeless. He just said whatever he could. So he would say, you're a complete loser. You're a failure. You're the scum of the earth. You are not my daughter and I want nothing to do with you. And saying all this, not like I'm saying it in yelling and shouting and yelling at my mom of why did you raise such a disgusting daughter? Who does she think she is? She is not a reflection of our family. This is what we did this all for. It's your fault. You sent her traveling in the world. You're the one who exposed her to these hippies who gave her this idea. What a waste. Hello there, it's Light Watkins. Welcome back to the Light Watkins Show. If this is your first time here, you are in for a treat. I interview ordinary people, just like you and me, who've taken extraordinary leaps of faith, often in the direction of their purpose or their path or their mission. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact the lives of many, many others who have heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who've benefited from their work. My guest today needs no introduction, at least to those of you who are in the wellness space. Her name is Sahara Rose, and Sahara is someone that I have known for years as we both lived in Los Angeles and operated in the wellness space, and we have tons of mutual friends, many of which have been on the podcast, but I had no idea how fascinating her backstory truly was and how much grit and determination and self-confidence and belief that Sahara had to have in herself in order to find and ultimately live in her purpose. Long story short, Sahara had been a lifelong volunteer, even as a teenager. She was traveling around, oftentimes internationally, volunteering in this orphanage or for that organization. And then when she was 21 years old, her body began shutting down and she started experiencing these perimenopausal symptoms. She was told that she would never be able to have children And the doctors prescribed her all kinds of medications for everything from digestion to hormonal balances to insomnia. And she felt that 
this was not the best way to heal herself. So she started researching more holistic forms of healing and she wanted to reach the root cause of her imbalances. Sahara ended up healing herself using natural remedies and then she felt called to share her experiences with others. And through a lot of grit and a series of bizarre circumstances and coincidences, Sahara became the author of a book called Eat, Feel, Fresh. And then that led to her writing another book called The Idiot's Guide to Ayurveda. And then later she wrote Discover Your Dharma. And now Sahara has a robust online community called the Dharma Coaching Institute. She hosts the Highest Self Podcast, which has become the number one spirituality podcast on iTunes with over 25 million downloads and counting. She is a keynote inspirational speaker and Sahara has been profiled in Vogue and Forbes as well as on the cover of Yoga Journal magazine. You are going to love hearing her story. Every time I'm honored enough to be able to talk to someone like Sahara and hear how they came to be who they are, I'm reminded of why I started this podcast, because her story is going to inspire you to keep going and to keep believing in yourself. So without further ado, let us get to the conversation that I had with Miss Sahara Rose. Sahara Rose, thank you so much for joining the podcast. And you and I have known each other for several years, but we haven't really been intimate friends. And so it'll be fun to kind of get to know you a little bit better through this interview and in anticipation of the next time I get to cross paths with you in person. Yeah, so I, I think I remember you being at my first book launch in 2017. Crazy. That was at and you had your book right? launch there shortly after. That's right. That's right. I, I was coming in to, I think, facilitate a private training or something. And then you were there for your book launch. Yeah. And that was the Dharma. That's Dharma book. That right? was Idiot's Guide to Ayurveda. Oh, gosh. That was, okay. So that was your first book. Yeah. I think I was around during your second book launch as well. Wait, wait, wait. You've written how many your books Dharma now? came out when around when you moved to Mexico City. It came out January of 2021. Did you have a book launch for that? No, it was a pandemic baby. I never got to celebrate. <laughs> well, 2021, you know, the pandemic was Yeah, it was still like it was people were still glorious Ben Decker had a book launch at Unplug and everyone wore masks and things like that. So so no. my book launch came out on the day of the coup d'etat. <laughs> so ah. that's where the world was that day. And I'm like, can on I January one 6th. day to not have some global thing? Yeah, January. It was January 5th. So I remember like January 6th being on Instagram Live and they're like, the White House is being taken over. I'm oh like, oh my God. Yeah, talk about shit again. <laughs> <laughs> well, so here we are. You know. Awesome. Well, listen, I want to start back in childhood. So were you raised in Boston? I know your parents I was. lived there. Okay. You're an only child? No, I have a younger brother. You all are the children of refugee immigrants. So talk just a little bit about how they ended up in America and from where. And what were some of the philosophies or ideologies you remember them echoing to you? and your little brother as you all were growing up? So both of my parents came from Iran. 
Iran, the country that's in between Afghanistan and Iraq. So in Iran in 1979, there was a revolution where the government was overthrown and an Islamic regime forcibly took over and instilled Sharia law on the entire country. So women at that time were not even allowed to go to work, go to school. Everyone was forced to wear headscarves. Music became illegal. It still is illegal today. Art is illegal today. Games are illegal today. Because of that, when the country was shutting down, my parents, who had not yet met, decided to flee. So my dad, and he had actually left Iran before thinking he was just going to go to college in the U.S. at MIT, and then the revolution happened. And also at the same time, there was a war going on with Iraq, where over one million Iranian people were killed. So simultaneously, there's bombs being dropped and a revolution happening, and that's why this Islamic regime was able to take power because when you're being invaded by an outside force, all you have is this government and that's what garnered them support. My mother was still in Iran at that time with this war happening and she wasn't sure if she would ever be able to go to school, if she would be forced to marry an older man. Both of my grandmothers were forced child marriages. My grandma was 11 years old when she was forced to marry my grandfather who was 27 at the time. So she took the risk of leaving Iran on foot. So like people are crossing the Mexican border today, you pay a coyote and you hope for the best. And she had to literally flee on foot, walking and hitchhiking, which took about a month through Turkey, where at Mm -hmm. this time, the Turkish soldiers were looking for Iranian refugees. And if you were caught, especially as a woman, not only would you go to jail, but there was gangbanging happening and really atrocious acts of war. So she fled through Turkey. She would tell me stories and she didn't even tell me all this until I was 18, but she would be hiding under a bridge trying to not breathe while the Turkish military is going overhead because if they found her, that would be the end. So finally, she was able to make it on foot. She almost like lost one of her toes to Bulgaria, hitchhiked to Bulgaria, got asylum in Spain lived in Spain, and then because she had a distant aunt that she had never met in the U.S., was able to get asylum in the U.S., and then just worked at an English school trying to learn English, and then a few years later met my dad and had me. So I did not obviously know this as a baby, but like born into a time of like deep trauma, you know, like you don't just escape from a war and a revolution and then everything's okay, even if you're telling yourself to. So a lot of the beliefs that I was raised about was about survival. How can you not stand out? How can you take the safest job, the safest bet possible? And especially for women, how can you marry someone who's going to ensure that safety for you? So that's a little bit about what that background looked like. And then, of course, I'm like, I'm going to go to Vietnam and I'm going to go to Nicaragua and this and that. And like, I think that we are all born into the microcosm that we're here to solve. So I needed to be born into a background of female suppression and patriarchy and all of those things. And then I was encoded with everything to be the opposite of that and to show for my lineage what is also possible. Have you checked out the Happiness Insiders? That's my online community that's designed to help you access more of your potential from the inside out. You can join dozens of fun self-help challenges and masterclasses, learn and grow in community, and get a roadmap for your daily inner work. And because you listen to this podcast, 
you'll get 30% off of my all access pass by going to thehappinessinsiders.com and using the promo code HAPPY. Again, go to thehappinessinsiders.com, enter the promo code HAPPY, and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all access pass. Plus, you'll get free live meditations with me every week and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com and the code is HAPPY. Okay, back to the episode. I read in your book that you did all this volunteering and was that one of the motivations for wanting to help people is that your parents had this really crazy adventurous journey to the United States? And number two, how are you paying for all that travel? Yeah. So epigenetics is so interesting because I did not know that both of my uncles were prisoners in Turkey and were freed by Amnesty International when I was the president of Amnesty International all throughout my high school. I had no idea that that organization literally helped free my family because my parents didn't tell me all of the, just the refugee story until I was 18. So it was like a deep soul knowing, like ever Mm -hmm. since I was a child, I just knew I'm here to help people. And I think because I had gone to Iran and seen the poverty there at the time that the Taliban was still in power, the Taliban. So I would see the Afghani refugees and talk to these street children and see the way that they were treating Iran, which was horribly. So I think that really opened my eyes from a young age and seeing just the inherent privilege that I had and how I paid for it. The school that I went to in Newton, actually, I was part of a global studies program in school. So everything that we were learning was related to like the topics of globalization and human rights and all of those things. So the first travel that I did was actually through my school that we would live with local families in Peru or Nicaragua or wherever else in exchange for doing volunteer work. So like in Costa Rica, we worked at a prison with the children whose mothers were incarcerated. Or in Peru, we worked at an orphanage. So it was sort of like a work trade thing that you paid the family, of course, to live with them, but it wasn't like a substantial amount of money. How did your parents feel about all that? traveling and volunteering? Was that something that they just kind of tolerated? They encouraged it? And what were their ideas for you for when you got older? (laughs) I mean, honestly, bless them because they allowed me to do it, even though they were very, very scared. You know, of course, they're afraid of their daughter. And as anyone would be going to a new country, living with a family and not having even cell phone access for a lot of it. I remember in this village in Thailand, I didn't have any, there was no phone access for that whole month. So I remember I would like, my dad is a scientist and very academic. So I would write these like research, like papers of why I should go. And like, you know, the three point paragraph and every point had, you know, here's why, and here's how it's going to help me. So my mom honestly was my advocate for it. She was the one who would really try to convince my dad. And I think often like mothers are, even though it scares them to see their child blossoming and growing, they know that it's going to help them for their greatest good. So you chose GW in Washington, D.C. Why? Because I wanted to be an international human rights lawyer. So I knew I needed to get to D.C. to be on the ground and working with just all forms of human rights. At that time, I thought I would work at the U.N. I thought that's like the gold standard of being able to help the world until I went to D.C. and started to work. I worked at the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Rights Association one summer, and I was like, 
they're doing great work, but it was all about the fundraiser. And how do we raise money for this fundraiser? And then the fundraiser is like going to pay for the food of the fundraiser. And I just felt very disconnected from the people that I wanted to help. I mean, even with the UN, like there's a lot of questionality around how much of those dollars are actually going on the ground and then how much of your work working in a nonprofit organization is actually with the people that you want to work with. So that's when I had my realization of, oh, maybe the UN and the World Bank and all these organizations aren't actually how I get to touch people's lives, but I didn't know what that would look like. And we're leading up to this rift between you and your parents. So I'm just curious, at this point, when you're choosing this college, with this major, with this intention to become a lawyer and work at the UN, is that still in alignment with what they have in mind for you? And also, how are you personally viewing success at that age? So they were still for it because there's still a level of security and being a lawyer and getting a job. And, you know, they're like, okay, that's her spin on it. It's this like global spin, but it's still safe and academic, especially if you're continuing education. I think a lot of immigrant families really value that. And then my take on even my career, it was just always about how do I help the most people possible? So for me, that was just the question I kept asking that I you know, would go to, for example, when I would be volunteering, I'm like, okay, the reason why this orphanage is not being funded is because the government is not funding the orphanage. So how do we get the governments to start funding the orphanage? Well, I don't want to work in the government because then you have to play their game. So I would have to do it from a legal thing. So I almost had like a sacrificial mindset of like, what is the thing that will help the most people that no one else wants to do? And I will be the one to do it. Where does that come from? this willingness to help as many people as possible. Can you identify where in your life you inherited that or you just born into that? What what is your thinking on it today? I think I was definitely just like born in knowing this. I remember in like elementary school and middle school, they're like, dress up like your superhero. And everyone's like Marilyn Monroe. And I'm like in a robe as Gandhi. (laughs) (laughs) And then when I learned about mother Teresa, I'm like, she helped so many people. She's a nun. I'll be a nun. That sounds perfect. I'm like not even Christian, but I'm like, so I just always would look at models of who are the people who are helping the most number of people. And I saw that they all sacrificed their lives. They all died for the cause. So if I do that, then I'll be able to help the most number of people. But for a lot of the time, I wanted to go to the Peace Corps after college. Mm-hmm. And I learned about this thing called being a human shield, which is where you actually use your physical body to stand in front of per se, a bulldozer in Palestine or a neighboring tribe that's coming into Uganda and you use your physical body to be a shield because as an American citizen, you have a little bit more power, which is so sad to hear. So I'm like, okay, then I'll just die as a human shield. But then I realized, oh, I would help more people if I could go into human rights law. So I don't know why I was coded like this, but (laughs) I definitely have been. Were you fearless? Were you not afraid to die or anything like that? Like you're talking like you were willing to go all the way. And I would um, tell my parents, I'm probably going to die young in this lifetime. That definitely scared them. I think I haven't really <laughs> faced death yet to know. So because of this tangible thing of like, well, I'll just die, but I'll help people that there was this fearlessness of it that I don't have today because I've had more interactions with death. And I don't believe that you need to sacrifice your life to help 
the most people as possible. And I just have a totally different mindset around all of this now. But I do think that I knew that this lifetime was about more than me. And all I had seen around me, especially in my parents' community, were people just living for themselves. And I knew I didn't want that this lifetime to be that for me. You mentioned Gandhi. I'm assuming that you read his experiments with the truth at a young age. Were there any other figures you were following closely and books you were reading that kind of helped to shape your path? I was very inspired by Ida B. Wells, by Harriet Tubman, by, I mean, because I grew up in Boston, there's such immense history there. I was very inspired by many of the women that died in the Salem witch trials, women who were depicted as witches just because they were doulas and medicine women. And I would spend a lot of time in in Salem actually and, and learn about witchcraft. So I always had that like spiritual side to me as well, but any form of social justice, someone going outside the mainstream norm, I would always become obsessed with learning everything about those people. What were some of your takeaways from Ida B. Wells and Harriet Tubman and some of the women accused of witchcraft Yeah, that you could apply in real time to your life at that moment? The mainstream isn't always correct. In fact, oftentimes, if you're going with the mainstream, you're going to realize the implications of it later on. So all of these, these women and figures in general, they were hated in their times. They were misunderstood. Mm -hmm. They were killed, most of them. So what it taught me is just because the mainstream all has this belief, it does not mean that it's right. In fact, it's probably, you're probably going to read about it a few years later and people are going to say, why didn't you do anything? And it's like, well, that's because of what everyone was doing, right? No one questioned slavery. No one questioned killing girls because they were going out into the woods. No one questioned those things. It was safe to go with the herd. So I think that I always had that knowing of going with the herd means you're not really going to stand up for the people who need it. Did you have any friends or mentors at that time as you were completing your college studies who you could like talk to about this kind of stuff and, and dream and imagine with, or were you kind of on your own? You know, in the global studies program that I was in, there were a lot of us with similar mindsets. We were actually in this like socialist group <laughs> that I went for a while. I'm like socialism is the way. Cause again, when you're young and you're like, that makes sense. We should have standard healthcare and education. I still very much believe in those things. So I would have people in school, but a lot of it, I never had a mentor or anything. It was just my own figuring out and curiosity. What led you down the path of nutrition, of learning about nutrition and becoming vegan and all of that? Yeah. So, well, as I, when I was a really young kid, I ate a lot of junk food and was overweight. So in high school, I realized that I needed to change my diet in order to eat healthier. So I started to eat healthier in high school. And then it wasn't until college that I became a raw vegan at that time, you know, raw veganism was a huge trend. And I thought, you know, if junk food was the worst food for you ever, then only eating raw food should be the best thing for you ever. And during this time, I started to lose a lot of weight, too much weight. I was down to like 89 pounds, losing a lot of hair, having really bad digestive issues, those digestive issues leading to every time I ate food, I would just be in so much crippling pain that it was like, it would just give me anxiety to even eat. And because I was not getting enough nutrients and I had such a low body fat percentage and the mental stress of like not really knowing my direction, I completely stopped menstruating for over two years. When 
happens and I got a blood test, I was no longer producing any estrogen or testosterone, like literally was at zero. So my body had gone into perimenopause, which tends to happen in your fifties. For me, it happened when I was 21 years old. So when your body starts shutting down at such a young age, you're going to have bone density issues. You know, you're probably going to have arthritis earlier in life. You're definitely not going to be able to have children and a whole host of different issues. So I had to start putting focus on healing myself, which I didn't want to do. I'm like, I have a world to save, but now I had to start going to doctors and those doctors would prescribe me different medications from antidepressants, which they said would be good for my gut. I don't know if they're still (laughs) hormone replacement therapy, go on birth control, IBS medication, a whole host of different prescription medications. And that's when I kind of intuitively knew there has to be a root cause to this, right? The cause of me having these problems is not a lack of this medication. It's something else, but it can't be my raw vegan diet. That must be the one amazing thing that I have going for me. Right. That's keeping me alive. Yeah. So that's when I started to then go on the path of diving into holistic, natural forms of medicine. At this time, you're also... This is like great. I'm like, wow, we're really going in here. (laughs) (laughs) You're also completing college. You have no job, no prospects. How did? Why don't you have a job lined up? I mean, it sounds like you're pretty smart. You're on top of it. You're part of all these groups. Your parents are putting all this pressure on you. What was your thinking? Well, I knew I didn't want to be an international human rights lawyer because I realized how corrupt the UN is. (laughs) (laughs) Talk, Talk just a little bit about that. What do you mean when you say they're corrupt? So you can look at different organizations and see what percentage of the money is actually going to the causes. And if you look at the UN, it's notorious for often little to no amount of the money that they are raising or getting from governments, which comes from taxpayers that are actually going to the causes. And in fact, there's many speculations of them just engaging in a lot of the work that they claim to be against. Because the concept of the UN is to have this non-political, for-the-people, global government that's going to support causes that are in need. However, because we have certain powers such as the U.S. that hold more jurisdiction than others, we're not on equal playing field. So if the U.S. has a vested interest in, per se, working with Saudi Arabia because of the oil, they're not going to go against Saudi Arabia for not letting women drive because Saudi Arabia is their friend. Or if the Haitian government is in so much debt from the U.S., they're not really going to help the people who need earthquake stuff there unless they can get some land out of that. So I started to realize how political it was and that that's not where I want to put my energy. So the reason why I didn't have a job was because I had no idea then how am I going to help people? I have these health issues. And at the same time, I started blogging. I started my blog, Eat Feel Fresh, which began as like a raw nutrition and recipe blog. But then I started to share more about positive psychology and my healing journey. And that started to take off. So what I really wanted was to figure out a way to make my blog, which I start to get different writers on. It was kind of operating like an online magazine. So my goal was to get Eat Feel Fresh off the ground and have that be the thing that sustains me. You've mentioned in one of your solo episodes of your podcast that you've always been super open, super honest. You always just said what was on your mind. You don't want to hide anything. And you still had that relationship with your parents. So were you like processing your lack of jobs and your plans for your blog with your parents at the time? And if so, what was their response? 
Yeah. At the beginning, when I told them about the blog and one of my blog posts went really viral on Pinterest. So I was getting like 500,000 clicks a month on this blog. So my dad actually took me to his lawyer of like, okay, we have something here. But at the time I didn't know how to monetize it. Like there was just Google AdSense, which paid you very little. I didn't know anything about courses or anything then. So I just thought if I could just turn it into an online magazine and get advertisers on there, then it could turn into a blog. So at the beginning, they saw that possibility, but then it was like month after month after month of it not making money. That's when they started to really pressure me to get a job. And at the same time, while I was in college, I became a a certified health coach with IIN. So I was doing some health coaching and I was using the blog to filter people into health coaching but I definitely did not find my value yet. I was like, $20 a consultation. Like you can have any problem, come to me. So obviously no one was really saying yes. So it was like, <laughs> I had this passion and I was onto something, but I didn't know how to turn it into a business. What article was that that went viral? It was called the One Week Detox. So it was about detox and smoothies and you know all the things we loved in 2009, right? <laughs> Chlorophyll and... Also like mental detoxing as well. That sounds pretty exciting. And then IIN for the listeners is Institute of Integrative Nutrition. And you'd been reading a lot of Deepak at the time too. Yeah. I know Deepak was involved with the founding of that, or he was one of the first faculty members or something like that. Right. So I had been reading Deepak's book since I was in high school. Like I, he was always someone I looked up to whenever I would get into fights with my parents, I'd be like, one day I'm going to be like Deepak Chopra. And they're like, you're crazy. And he's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't have the best rep with my parents because, you know, they like that he's a doctor, but not the stuff that he's talking about. They didn't understand it at that time. Also, I had been traveling to India. So I started traveling to India while I was in college. I was doing health and sanitation in the slums of New Delhi. So after I graduated from college, I was also living in India at this time. That was my next question. How did you get to India? How did you pay for that? I'm just, I always like to ask that because, you know, we have these stories, but in case somebody's listening, like, okay, I want to do what Sahara is doing. How does that even work? How did it happen? So my roommate in college was from Delhi. And so I'm friends with so many people from India and that's how I started traveling there. And I really, really had a community of Indian friends who were from India studying in the U S. So I was able to just stay with them. Right. But when you go to a place, you're looking for the slum, you're looking for the orphanage. Like you're not just going there to see the sites. You're going there to like help people, which is Mm -hmm. interesting. So all of them in India, a lot of people, because there's such a huge disparity gap, they have different nonprofits that they work with. So once I was there, it was pretty easy for me to find schools and centers and places. So yeah, like one of them, for example, was a preschool in the slums that's like teaching kids like wash your hands and like hygiene and things like that. Another one, they were like teaching kids like dance and just fun recreational activities I watched Slumdog Millionaire. So I went to that exact slum where that took place, where now actually like Justin Bieber even came and was like teaching dance to the kids in the slums there. So once you're in India, it's not hard to find people to help. You're a raw vegan. I can't imagine a worse place to be a raw vegan than India. (laughs) They had never seen anyone just eating raw greens. It was unheard of for them. And also like the reason why people don't eat raw food in India is because there's so much bacteria. and Yeah, a lot of contamination. But here I was, I would like go out of my way to find farms to like eat my smoothies and salads all the time, which also is perpetuating my health issues. Talk about Ayurveda. How did you discover Ayurveda? 
Yes. So it's funny how we go somewhere thinking we're going to help them and then they really help us. So at that time, my digestion was just so bad. I still was not getting my period. So I decided, you know, I was studying all these different health systems and Ayurveda so spoke to me because when I took a dosha quiz and I read everything about Vata, which is the air energy, it was all of my symptoms, bloating, gas, constipation, low period, dry skin, eczema, anxiety, but then my personality of loves to travel, big picture, thinks outside the box, moves quickly, always up to something. And like, I felt so understood physically, mentally, spiritually. So I just became obsessed, which obviously is a theme here. Just I find something I dive in and I just want to learn everything I could about it. So of course I'm in India. I'm going to sign up for Ayurveda school. I went to an Ayurveda school. It was in Janakapuri in Delhi. And that was all about Ayurvedic nutrition and cooking. And I'm learning about Ayurveda through books online. I go down to South India, Kerala, Goa. I mean, in India, you just kind of walk by and there's like a healer there. So like I met this Ayurvedic guy who was like doing like Ayurvedic massage. So I just started studying with him in Kerala. I went on a Panchakarma. I started learning from them. I would talk to the doctors. So I just became obsessed with learning everything about it. And then also trying to find where does this line up with modern nutritional science? What are the things that we can see come hand in hand? Like Ayurveda says, we're not what we eat, but we are what we digest and assimilate. And then modern nutritional science says 70% of your serotonin is in your gut. And it's all about how you're digesting. So I would find these parallels or endomorph, mesomorph, ectomorph relates to vata, pitta, kapha. So I'm like parallel there. So I started just writing everything down and finding things. And then I was finding things that were totally different of like, okay, the West says have smoothies with superfoods with ice. And in Ayurveda, they say having cold foods is like the worst thing ever. So which one is it? Can I find research to show which one? So I started just writing this and putting this together and I was sharing on my blog. And that's when I got the idea to write a book, especially for millennial women like me who are struggling with digestive and hormonal issues, bringing together ancient Ayurvedic wisdom with modern nutritional science. Yeah, they're not big on eating raw foods either. And they pour ghee on everything and they use milk for a lot of remedies. So you must have had to suspend a lot of your beliefs around raw veganism. And I was in order still to- a vegan. So I didn't do the ghee and I didn't do the milk. And in all my books, they're still all plant-based, which mm. in India is unheard of. So I would make like almond milk and use that or coconut. So it was never like, cause hundred percent, if you go to India, it's all about the ghee and the rice, but I would see that those foods are not necessarily the most nutrient dense. And I can understand why in ancient India, you have your neighborhood cow and the cows were revered. They were sacred. Their milk was sacred. It's a very different type of milk than we get at a factory farm where they're abused and injected mm-hmm. with hormones. So I just became obsessed with how do we take like the ancient approach to Ayurveda, these doshas, these archetypes, this mind-body connection, but look at the way that our world has changed in the past, not even 2000 years, the past 100 years. The fact that an orange that your grandmother ate had like 300% more vitamin C than an orange that we eat today, the way that minerals are lost in the soil. So why does Ayurveda say don't eat raw food or don't eat food cooked more than three hours ago? Then I thought, well, they didn't have refrigerators back then. So that makes total sense. Why does Ayurveda say not eat mushrooms? Okay. Most of the mushrooms here, and I went down a rabbit hole on this one. A lot of the mushrooms in India are psychedelic mushrooms. 
This rule of not eating mushrooms came during the British rule. Why? They did not want people ingesting psychedelic mushrooms. Why? Probably they would revolt and say, why are you taking over my country? This isn't yours. So I just became obsessed with like these things that didn't make sense. Why are they the way that they are? And I'm like, oh, that makes total sense. And also Ayurveda is a living and breathing science and has shifted with the times as well. If you mainly listen to this podcast, I want to remind you that we also have video episodes on my YouTube channel. If you ever want to put a face to a story, just go to YouTube and search Light Watkins Podcast and you'll see the entire playlist. And make sure to subscribe there as well so you don't miss any episodes. We upload the full-length video every Wednesday and the plot twist episode every Friday. Okay, back to the show. This inspired an idea for a book, but you're just like, what, 22, 23, you've never written a book before, you've been writing the blog, but now that's all shifted to this whole other area of interest in Ayurveda. What made you think you could pull it off? I was 23 years old at this time, and I would just spend all my time just writing and writing and writing. And honestly, I just knew if I could get this on the shelves of Barnes and Noble somehow, this would help so many people. If only I knew this stuff, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be in this situation now. And, and slowly I started to get a better digestive system. And finally I started menstruating again. So I'm like, okay, this, this stuff works. So honestly, I thought in my head, if I just write the whole book, I didn't know what the next step would be, but then I knew I could get it into the shelves of Barnes and Nobles. And then that took me down a two year plus journey of you know, I had no direction. I had no table of contents. I never met an author in my life. So I would just write this book and then have like a different idea about how to write it and rewrite this book. And at this time too, I left for Bali. I left India because living in India is quite challenging, especially as a single woman. And there were times that I was definitely in danger there. And I just knew that I, I didn't have the freedom that I wanted to have living in India. So I left for Bali and being exposed to people in Bali who were all these like spiritual entrepreneurs and doing these, they're like tantric life coaches. I'm like, do your parents know you're here? Like, is this allowed? <laughs> and that really exposed me to new ways of doing things. You said something told you to go to Bali. So what was that that told you? to go to Bali that you're aware of now? What, what do you think that something was? Honestly, I think I just watched Eat, Pray, Love. <laughs> I'm like, so Bali's popping off. I never met anyone that went to Bali in my life. It wasn't like Instagram hadn't even really started yet at this point. So it was just like, I just knew Bali was a place of spirituality. And if I just got there, I'd figure something out. And also I knew it was pretty cheap so I could afford living there. I mean, it sounds like you didn't have a job. You're like bartering, you're staying with host families. Was, How did most you? Most of my income came from the health coaching that I would do. And I mean, living okay. in India, my hut was $2 a night. So if, I'm, <laughs> if I was like, if I could make like $300 this month, like I'm good. So you, yeah. you saved up some money. You got a ticket to Bali, one way ticket, of course. Yeah. And. You ended up with another host family near a farm to table community. So talk a little bit about that experience and how it impacted you in your past. Yeah. So I went on Airbnb and I found this place and it was called Om Unity, like OM. And I'm like, that sounds amazing. I can only afford two nights here, but I'm here. <laughs> 
So I went and then I just stayed with that family and I would go, I would help them around, like help them in the village, help them cook, help their marriage and their relationship, (laughs) (laughs) do what needed to be done. And I loved it there because it was like a true Balinese village in the rice fields, no tourists. And being in India, it's super crowded and convoluted and just like so much going on. So here in Bali, I could really have time to think and heal. And then I went to Ubud and that's when I really started to find this community of just people on a healing journey. And originally I was, cause I had studied Ashtanga yoga in India, like very deep on a yogic path, but that's when I discovered ecstatic dance and shamanism and a new way of doing things, which just unlocked an entirely new pathway for me. That sounds beautiful. And meanwhile, in the background, your parents are threatening to disown you. So how are you balancing those two? I'm like ecstatic dancing. I get a text from my mom and it's like a novel of like, you ruined my life. And it would just take me off that so much of like being in Bali was just trying to figure out, am I selfish for being here? Am I selfish for choosing my own path? Maybe I should just sacrifice this one thing for my parents. Look at all they sacrificed for me. That one thing being my dharma, my purpose, my life. But I'm causing so And at this point, my aunts are calling me. My brother, everyone is begging me to come home saying I've basically destroyed my entire family. And one thing about me, I have always been honest. So I would tell my mom, I went under a waterfall with a shaman. And he held my head under the water for 30 years and I was seeing visions. And she's like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, but I felt like if I keep telling her these things, it's going to open her up to it more, which in some ways it did, but in other ways it just scared her because she was afraid. Like also in India, there were times, I mean, I stayed at the Osho ashram. I tried to go to the Sadhguru ashram, but didn't end up working out. So she would look up Sadhguru and be like, this looks like a creepy old man. And I'm afraid of what's going to happen if you go there. And by the way, my time at the Osho ashram was amazing, I will say. (laughs) So they were very afraid of what can happen. And it's true. There definitely are cults out in the world and people who take advantage. And honestly, I'm so grateful that I'm safe and I'm not telling anyone to do what I did. But for some reason, I was divinely protected. And I just kept meeting people like specifically, I met this woman named Malaika, who's this incredible 55 year old, just like eccentric shaman. And she had this training called five elements, shamanic dance activation. And I was, I went to some of her African dance workshops and different workshops. And I was just so blown away by the earth element, the Shakti, the groundedness, the reverence to nature it was like a whole level of soul that I had never felt in yoga where it's very disciplined and and masculine. And it's about holding back. Whereas this was about like the feminine path. So I knew I needed to do her training. So I did just like a work study trade for her that I would just like go around Ubud and put up her billboards and help her with whatever she needed help with. So I could do this training. And that really unlocked just a certainty within me because before that I was not sure of like, is spirituality just going to be this hobby that I have on the side? And then I have to go back and get a normal job. Like, can this be me? Like all of you guys are white. Is this just for white people? (laughs) Like I was not sure. I'd never seen someone like me doing something like this. I felt like you, you guys are so lucky because you have these like American Western parents that you guys can talk about sex on the internet. Like I could never do that. And I remember like, I saw my this girl, she wasn't even my friend at this time, Melissa Ambrosini, she wrote this book about sex. And I'm like, maybe in the next lifetime, I could do something like that, but never in this. 
So it was like this, I see it works for you guys, but it's never going to work for me. But doing that training, healing through ecstatic dance, releasing so much of the generational trauma and pain. And I was also dating this guy in India. And like, that was also holding on to my old former self. So all of that gave me that certainty in my path. Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then I know you're going to love my last three books. There's Travel Light, which is basically a roadmap for following your heart. Then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is a book of inspirational stories to help you find more inspiration in daily life. And then there's Bliss More if you want help dialing in your meditation practice. And all of my books are available on Amazon. All right, back to the show. Did you finish the book in Bali? Did you actually finish writing that book in Bali or did you not finish it until later? No. So that first book was called Eat Right for Your Mind Body Type. And, you know, just for people listening to this, I suggest having a table of contents before writing a book because I just kept going for two years and never knew when it was when it was done. And the truth is your book is never done. So then finally, after all of this, I came back to LA. I was living with my grandma at the time. No, you were in Boston first. You got to tell the Boston story first because that's where you disconnected from your parents. Exactly. So basically I was in Bali and in India and finally it was time. Like I, if maybe what I could have done is just stayed there, but I had so much guilt. I was really, and I think even a lot of my human rights stuff was fueled by guilt and guilt is a huge part of, I think many immigrant cultures, but I just felt so bad for being there that I needed to fix whatever I could with my family. So I went back to Boston, my childhood home where I grew up and it was just a collision. In the basement by yourself, no friends. Cause you'd been traveling. No friends. The boyfriend that I had in India, I found out was cheating on me. Cheated on time. you. <laughs> like, so I had no one to talk to about this stuff totally because the people in Bali is just like, you're there and you're there. And if you're gone, it's like, bye. So I came back and I was processing this breakup and trying to figure out like, how do I get the fuck out of here? And I would like go outside. My parents lived in a suburb and I would just like shake and do these practices. And they just thought I was crazy. Like there were actual talks about sending me to a mental institute, not even joking. And they were worried that something happened to my brain. And (laughs) that's why I'm like this. And at that point I was just like, certain that I'm not going to get the job and take the path that they want. But I, again, didn't have the, I was just like, I'm going to get this Ayurveda book off the ground. It's going to happen. And they're like, you've been saying this for two years and it hasn't happened yet. So I remember a specific fight with my dad and my dad. Now I realize definitely has Asperger's and I didn't know this until recently (laughs) when people have Asperger's, they're very cut off sometimes from empathy So he says things that are super blunt and can be taken really mean. So I was telling him this and he's just started, and he also has really bad anger problems and is a narcissist and has OCD. And so all the whole mixed bag and can be a loving person, but because he was so afraid of me taking this pathway that would potentially end me up in a mental asylum or homeless, he just said whatever he could. So he would say, you're a complete loser. You're a failure. You're the scum of the earth. You are not my daughter. And I want nothing to do with you. 
And saying all this, not like I'm saying it in yelling and shouting and yelling at my mom of why did you raise such a disgusting daughter? Who does she think she is? She is not a reflection of our family. This is what we did this all for. It's your fault. You sent her traveling in the world. You're the one who exposed her to these hippies who gave her this idea. What a waste. So I remember going down to my childhood room where I saw like my dolls and everything. And I just looked up at them and I'm like, was this bullshit? Did they tell me to follow my dreams and believe in myself? And here I am doing it and I'm dead to them. I'm a failure. I'm a loser. I'm the scum of the earth. So what the fuck did I do this all for? And it made me realize how much I had been living for their stamp of approval. Like even me trying to explain myself to them is like, will you approve of me now? If I, if I just tell you enough times, like, will I be enough for you? And here I was dead. And this wave came over me, this feeling of numbness of just, well, if I have no one to live for, but myself, then I'm just going to live for me. I'm not going to make every decision around, okay, well, what would they think about this? Or how could I get them to understand? Or what's the happy medium between what I want and what they want? Instead, I'm just going to decide for myself and pretend I don't exist to them because basically that's where it's gotten. That was the level of rock bottom that I needed to reclaim my power. And I had met this girl in Bali on the shamanic training I had done, and she was going to lead a retreat in India. And she had told me about it earlier. She's like, why don't you co-lead it with me? You could teach Ayurveda stuff. And I was before, I was like, my parents would never let me go back to India. This time I messaged her. I'm like, I'm coming to India. And I let my parents know, not ask, let them know I'm going back to India. And that's what I did. And they started calling you escapist and other names and, but oh, you were just yeah. completely I mean, that tuned, was like, tuned out at this point. An ongoing, you're an escapist. Like, what are you looking for? Like, what are you searching for? This truth you're searching for doesn't exist. The truth is everyone doesn't like their job. The truth is no one's really happy. You just have to make peace with it. You think you're going to live in this la-la land that you're traveling and doing what you love and this, it doesn't exist. Get real. Wow. And part of me was like, well, I guess that's true because that's what I've seen the experience of everyone else. But then part of me had seen glimpses of this other reality. Not that everyone living in Bali was happy. I saw a lot of the shadows in that community as well, but they were living like these other pathways that no guidance counselor could have told you to become a tantric life breathwork coach, you know? So <laughs> I knew it existed. A lot of them did struggle with money though. So I made the choice of, I would rather do what I love and not make enough money to live in the U S but make enough to live a comfortable life in Bali and in India, than get a job. Like, cause the jobs I was applying for were like work in makeup at L'Oreal and like become a real estate agent, like things that if I had to do this day in and day out, no amount of money could even numb me for the level of pain I would have been existing in. So I still at that point thought you either do what you love or you make money as a choice. And I just chose doing what I love. Talk about how you ended up getting that book deal. Yes. So after being in India, I went back to India, hosted the retreat, stayed there for a few months. And 
there was actually a situation that I was in that this man who on, you know, in, in Goa, there's no like taxis, it's all motorcycles. And this guy would take every single day on the motorcycle. Like every day I knew this guy trusted him. It was one of my last days that I was like planning to leave and come back. And I had a performance, a dance, belly dance performance. So I was wearing makeup. I was still completely covered up, but his interaction with me was a little bit different that day. And to get to this belly dance performance, we had to drive about like 20 minutes through the jungle where there's no cell phone reception or anything. So I'm driving through the jungle and he puts his hand on my inner thigh. This man is like 20 years older than me, a lot bigger than me. I remove his hand off my thigh. He puts his hand on my thigh again. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, how old do you think I am? I'm like 50. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm 32. I'm like, what is he trying to go for? And he's like, and I had lied. And I told them all I had a husband in Delhi's just so they all thought I was married. And he's like, you don't have a husband, do you? And I'm like, I do. He lives in Delhi. And then he kept putting his hand on my thigh again. And I'm just like, holy fucking shit. He's probably going to stop the motorcycle and try to rape me. Hmm. And I have no cell phone reception. I can't believe I fucking trusted this guy and have been going on his motorcycle every single day. And here I fucking am. So I took my cell phone, which didn't have service. And I just pretended to be talking to someone who's there. I'm like, Hey girl, like I'm on my way to the belly dance performance. I'm 10 minutes away. Yeah. I'm with that same driver. I forget what his name is like Pratop or something. I'm with that same driver. I told you about that. I take every single day. Oh yeah. So what time is it starting? And I just kept talking as if there's someone there. I don't know if he believed me. Like maybe he realized that I was, didn't have cell phone reception or maybe he did believe me, but he drove me there. And I got off the motorcycle and he said, I'll be waiting for you when you're done. And I had to leave in the back of a trunk where he couldn't see me, take all my shit and leave that night to the airport because I knew what happens is revenge rape of like, I let you get away and I will get you back. And that really showed me that like, cause I was living in the back of a restaurant at that time with, it's just a bunch of men there. And they knew I was just living in their room in the back of the restaurant. I had a padlock and I was like, wow, this is really dangerous. Like what I'm doing. And Luckily I got away right now, but it's not safe for me to continue like this. So I left and my grandma was staying in LA. So I decided to live with my grandparents and just like help them around in exchange for living there. And I brought back these pants, these recycled sari material pants. And that's when I started my business of Saraswati Couture. So I share that just to let people know that like, don't just go off and travel by yourself and trust everyone because there are also people who take advantage of young spiritual open women that sometimes we don't realize it until we're in the situation. And how did that lead to your book being published? Yeah. So now I'm in LA and I'm getting to know different people in the yoga world. And I met this girl who had come out with this book that was like about health. It was like the ABC. Her name's Maria Marlowe, actually. Maybe you know her. So she came out with this book. So I started to ask her, I'm like, how did you come out with a book? What did it look like? So she shared with me that you get a literary agent. I'm like, oh, did not know about that piece. And then you write a book proposal. And then the literary agent shares the book with different publishers. And then the publishers choose a book. And I was just like, whoa, did not know about this world. (laughs) Like, how does one meet a literary agent? She's like, I'll connect you with mine. So she connected me with hers and we went around shopping this book that I had now not only written, but paid for graphic design and put all together. And they shopped it to like 30 different publishers who all rejected me. And they said, 
No one knows about Ayurveda. You're not a doctor. This is confusing. You're too young. This is never going to happen. So all of the fears that my parents told me, all of the fears that I had, it came true. This book is not going to happen. So I think most people there would have quit, (laughs) but I kept holding on. So the next thing that happened was honestly just like a week, I want to say later, very shortly after she said, by the way, the Idiot's Guide group is looking for someone to write the Idiot's Guide to Ayurveda. They had someone who was four months into the six months, but they quit because it was too much work. Would you be interested in applying? So I'm like, yes, sure. I'll write a new Ayurveda book, like anything to get my foot in the door. So I went to Barnes & Noble's, read every single Idiot's Guide book they had, learned their tone and how they do things. And I made that table of contents, like very detailed 16-page table of contents. And they're like, okay, we like this. Send us what your first chapter would be. Did the same thing the next day, stayed up all night, wrote that first chapter. And then I was hired to write the Idiot's Guide to Ayurveda. That's a pretty in-depth undertaking, no? It definitely was. And once I started writing it, I'm like, oh, wait, now I have to write an entirely new book on Ayurveda without like, because I still had hopes for my book happening. And so I'm like, I don't want to repeat the way that I said anything. And it also needs to be in this idiot's guide tone. And I also have two months to do the whole thing. And it's not just like Ayurvedic nutrition. It's like, this is the textbook for the American public on Ayurveda. (laughs) So it's like, it needs to be really, really precise on the gunas and the sub gunas and all of these different things that Honestly, I really believe that that happened to me because it deepened my understanding of Ayurveda so much so that if I just played in the nutrition realm, I wouldn't have had that more spiritual and ancient understanding of it that I needed to learn to write this book. Was this the book that you had written when you met Deepak at that conference? This was the book, yes, that he wrote the forward to. Okay. So tell that story because that's a really cool story of how you kind of took that leap of faith. Yes. So two months in, I spent all day, like 16 hour days and I wrote the book. And then still after it was done, I was like, okay, well now I still need to make my Ayurveda book happen. But then I had this realization. I'm like, okay, again, imagine this is my last year left to live. Let me just give this book my all. Almost a year later, I was in New York and I met someone on a Facebook group named Sada Simone. And Saw was like, hey, like, let's meet up. I'm going to this yoga and science conference at Long Island University in in Brooklyn, I believe it was. I never met this person before. Seemed interesting. And I decided to go to the conference where I was super late. So I was in the very last row. And, you know, it was a very scientific conference. It was like more research on breath being good for you and very analytical. And honestly, I was super bored. So in my mind, and by the way, I was thinking about Deepak Chopra all the time. So in my mind, I was like, you know what? The only thing that can make right now super lit is if Deepak Chopra walks on stage. So they're like, blah, blah, blah. Okay, now it's lunch break. Oh, and here's our sponsor, Deepak Chopra. And he walks onto that stage and he just says, hello, everyone. And that's it. It's lunch break. Everyone's leaving the auditorium. And something in me said, you're probably never going to see him in person for the rest of your life. Just walk up to him. Just say something. I didn't even know what I was going to say. There's a thousand people walking up the stairs out of this auditorium. I am just on autopilot. Something came through. I'm just walking down the stairs, up the stairs of the stage. And then I'm now standing next to him, just looking at him while he's in a conversation with someone, not knowing what I'm going to say. I don't even know how I got on the stage, to be honest. But (laughs) then he looks over at me. He's like, hello. 
And I'm like, hi, Dr. Chopra. Like, I'm such a fan of your work. It really inspired me. I wanted to share with you that I wrote this book, Idiot's Guide to Ayurveda. It's with your same publisher, Penguin. And I would love to send it to you. He's like, sure, here's my email and gave me his personal email. And I'm like, holy crap, this is the highlight of my life. Like, this is it. I will remember this day forever. I have Deepak Chopra's email. And I thought maybe that's it. But like, that was enough for me. And I was just on cloud nine. I sent him. And by the way, this was like on a Friday, I want to say. My book is to be printed on Tuesday. So there was no thought about quote or anything. It's just like, I just want to share my book to him. So I sent him the book and this is where it gets pretty crazy. So I'm in New York that weekend and I was actually going to visit that same friend, Maria, who introduced me to the literary agent. We were going to record some videos and I'm running really late. I'm eating while walking. I'm super busy. I'm crossing the street. And I hear a voice behind me saying, hello, can someone help me cross the street? And I look back, I'm already halfway across the street right now. This is in like Upper West Side. And I see this man, he looks homeless, has bags in his hand and something in my voice in my head told me, Sahara, if you say you're such a good person, help this person cross the street. So I go back, I put my raw vegan sushi in my bag and I go up to this man. I say, I'll I'll help you cross the street. Where do you want to go? Grabs me by the arm. And he says, I want to go two blocks down, down the stairs into the subway. I'm like, okay, sure. Like forgetting I'm, I'm never going to make it on time. So I take this man by the arm. We're just walking down the street and I'm like, so where are you from? He's like, I'm from Iraq. I was a refugee. I'm like, wow, my mom was a refugee from Iran. And we start, and those were actually the opposing countries of each other in the war. So we start talking about that. Then he starts telling me about his son. He has one son who's a lawyer and one son who's a doctor. I'm like, wow. Like I would have never thought And I put him in the subway, the elevator door is about to close. And I say, sir, by the way, where are you going? He says, I'm going to university. I'm a doctor of physics. Hmm. So I remember thinking in my head, like, wow, what are humans of New York experience? Like, I would have never thought this guy is a professor and his sons. Like, that was so amazing. Like, this is why I love New York. Like, you get to meet all these people in different walks of life. And I was just, again, on cloud nine from that experience. Check my email on my phone. And there's an email signed at that moment that I let go of that man's hand from Deepak Chopra. And it says, what's your number? I want to call you. And I'm like, holy crap. What did I do wrong? Why does he want to call me? You know, your mind goes for the worst. And I'm like, oh my God, is this a mistake? Like, why does he want to call me? Like, what does he want to say? So I send him the number and he calls me immediately. And he's like, where are you going to be on? I think it was Tuesday. I said, I don't actually live here in New York. I'm, I live in LA. He's like, perfect, because I have my You Are the Universe talk. It's like this four-hour-long lecture in San Diego. I would love for you to come and chat with you after. I'm like, okay, I'm there. So what are the odds? I go back to LA, drive to San Diego. I'm like doing these like yantras, like everything I can to get into the energetic state and like working with the crystals and the affirmations and the mantras. And again, not knowing what this interaction is going to be. I was just so overjoyed to even meet this person who's like an idol to me. So he gives his talk. I'm like shaking in the audience, just being in, <laughs> in his presence. And then he walks off stage, like points to me. He's like, okay, come with me. And then takes me to this like office room where there's like four people from his team. And they start asking me all these different questions of like, why were you there? 
where'd you go to college? Like, where's your book from? Like, they're like kind of interrogating me to be honest. (laughs) And I'm just answering the questions and they're like, and then Deepak is like, I loved your book. I loved the way that you were able to modernize Ayurveda. I would love to write the forward of it and have you join Jaya, which was the app that he had on that time. That was all about kind of bringing spirituality to the millennials and younger generation. I was like, what? Like, what? like my life just changed so drastically. Like, is this real? Like, am I? And I remember we took our first video, which he put on his Instagram and he was saying like, this is Sahara Rose. She's joining the faculty of Jaya. And that's when I was like, Oh my, like I've heard of this energy of Kriya of living in alignment and flow and just meeting the right people at the right time. But I had never experienced it before because it's like, all of a sudden you're on this entirely new trajectory, this new timeline for your life. And then shortly after he introduced me to Russell Simmons and that's how Tantras happened and all of that. So I remember sending him an email after, and I was like, Hey, uh, Dr. Chopra, you talk a lot about meaningful synchronicities. And I actually happened to meet this homeless guy when you emailed me. And I'm curious to hear, like, do you think we can always live in flow or periods of flow need to be followed by periods of inertia? Because, you know, it can't, it can't always be this good. Right. And he replied, he said, Sahara, if life isn't always in flow, then something is wrong. And I'm like, what? Like it's always can't be like this. Like, is this, cause it's like, we hear things like life's tough, get a helmet or like, you know, if things are going good, you better watch out. They're about to get bad. And I was like bracing myself for like the bad to happen. And that just opened me up of like Kriya flow. This is my new normal. So now you and Deepak and Russell Simmons are best friends. (laughs) (laughs) Are you feeling like you're in your purpose at this point? Because I know you've written that your purpose is to help other people find their purpose. And, you know, purpose obviously evolves over time. But just thinking back, were you feeling like, okay, this is what I'm I'm doing, what I'm supposed to be doing? Oh, 100%. I think our purpose completely evolves. We have different iterations, maybe different soul contracts with different aspects of our purpose. But 100%, like me being able to share Ayurveda and write this book and like receive support from someone who... I so deeply looked up to, because I also had a lot of fear around me writing a book on Ayurveda and just like people saying those exact things. The publisher said to me, you're not a doctor. You're, you're too young. You're too this, you're too that. And to have someone like Deepak Chopra stand by me was like, I didn't have my own dad stand by me, you know, and to have someone like him, it was like truly out of this world. What was the inspiration behind discover your Dharma? Because I know a lot of times with publishers, the book does well. They want to do part two, part three, part four. So you could have easily probably written another two or three books about Ayurveda. And Dharma is, of course, an extension of that body of knowledge. But why discover your Dharma? Yeah. So after Idiot's Guide to Ayurveda, I finally was able to write my modernized Ayurveda book, but it turned into Eat, Feel Fresh, which was the name of mm-hmm. my blog. And I went to India and I shot the photography. So like that aspect of my soul contract was like complete. And when I finished that book, I could feel, I no longer wanted to talk about Ayurveda. I'm like, if mm. someone asks me, what are the three doshas one more time? I literally <laughs> might just jump off this balcony. Cause at this point it's like seven years that I'm just talking about Ayurveda. And some people can talk about the same thing for the rest of their lives. I can't. So That's I because you're, you're Vata. Exactly. So yeah. Around this time that Idiot's Guide to Ayurveda came out, I just wanted to have conversations around 
purpose and past lives and karma and like all of these different things that I was so interested in. And that's how I started my podcast, Highest Self. And that's when I began to share more about these stories and these experiences. So people started asking me, they're like, wait, how did you go from like living at your grandma's house literally the week before to Deepak Chopra writing the forward of your book? Like, how did that happen? Like, how were you able to actually get this Ayurveda book off the ground? Like share with me because they would see me and they're like, you were just where I am right now. How did things shift for you? And I realized too, that a lot of my health issues were related to me not being in line with my purpose. So when I look back on this time, sometimes we hold so much power to, well, if I just eat the right foods and take the right supplements and do the right things, then I'll be fixed. And it's like that control, but really it's, what is the purpose of health? I start to ask myself, the purpose of health is so I don't have to worry about my health anymore. I say that I say your purpose is your health insurance. (laughs) Exactly. That's your real health insurance. That energy hundred percent and not, and have that be your insurance, have that not be the thing that you're worried about. So that's when I started to realize that really, and honestly, before writing discover your Dharma, the original book that I proposed it as was a Vedic guide to living your best life. So it's going to be more about like Sankalpa and just different Vedic Kriya, different Vedic terminology in your lifestyle. But as I was writing it, I realized, well, really the whole point of all of this is to live your Dharma is to live your purpose. And that's how it sort of turned into discover your Dharma. You and I have so much in common. (laughs) When I wrote my meditation book in 2018, I was like, I don't want to speak about meditation anymore. (laughs) This is it. I want to write about something completely different. Ended up writing about inspiration. Now I'm writing about minimalism. And you've been kind of branching off as well into different areas of interest. You've revisited your passion for dancing. You've gotten into DJing. And I know that in the earlier days of of exploring those interests, you were trying to hide it, right? And so talk about that and how you kind of transcended the feeling that you needed to hide it and just embracing it fully. And what does that feel like when you Mm. embrace something fully like that? Yeah. So I think a lot of us, we get into spirituality and we're like, okay, let me walk the walk and talk the talk and wear the white robes and the mala beads and like, you know, look the part, right? Because that's what spirituality is supposed to be, or so we think. And the parts of me, you know, I grew up on a hip hop dance team and doing step and all these different interests, but I thought, well, that doesn't fit into the box. I can't let anyone know that I went to a twerk class. No way. They're not taking me seriously. They're already not taking me seriously. So keep that away from Instagram and share the side of me that fits the spiritual look, the spiritual culture per se. And then as I started to slowly show parts of myself outside of the storm, I remember I, I went to this twerk class with my friend, Paul, who's this like fabulous queer man. And he shared on his Instagram stories. And I was like, Oh my God, like, I can't reshare that. I can't let people know. And then he's like, I'm just getting such great feedback on it. Like people are loving it. And then I reshared it. I'm like, am I safe? Okay, I'm safe. And then you share a little bit more. Am I safe? Nope. No one burned me at the stake. Okay, I'm still good. And you realize that it's like our fear is that we're going to lose our credibility, that people are going to hate us, that they're going to cancel us. And I need to fit inside the norm that people think of me as to keep my relationship with them, but it's actually the opposite is true because no one's going to remember you if you're just like exactly playing the part of what a spiritual person looks like in their mind. So when I start to share more of that 
And, you know, growing up, I was always, I always loved hip hop music. And I'm always like, I want to marry a DJ one day. I want to date DJs. That was definitely my, my thing. I'm like, wait, why don't I become a DJ? Become the mm. person that you want to date and marry. So I went to DJ school at Scratch Academy and I just started to actually give energy to these different parts of myself that I didn't feel fit into the box. And as I started sharing it, it became that permission slip for others too of like, wow, I never totally fit into the white LA Valley girl spirituality. Like a lot of women of color follow me and they're like, I thought people would slut shame me for having a pole dance practice or for going to African dance. And I feel connected to my roots and my hips and my sexuality and, and not like, I feel like now like sexuality on Instagram has turned into another thing that's like related to capitalism and money and is like kind of take, take it on this distorted thing, but like, just like true joy. And that's really what my interest is in right now. Of Like, why do we even live our purpose? It's to experience joy, but we don't need to wait until everything's figured out in life. We can tune into our joy frequency right now. And that's actually going to allow us to channel the best ideas that we're here to create. And I also now believe that creativity is the highest form of spirituality. You know, we can sometimes get stuck in this loop of healing, now I need to heal this. I need to rebirth myself. I need to repair myself. Oh shit. That whole lineage of trauma. And don't forget about the past life in Egypt. And it's like never ending, but the purpose honestly is to have fun, to make shit and to be the vessel of the ideas that are coming through you. So I feel like as I've gone on, I just take myself and all of this so much less seriously. And I'm just like, what can I just be a channel of today and have fun doing it? Speaking of marrying a DJ, you didn't exactly marry a DJ. You married an ex-real estate broker. You mentioned his story in your book, and I just loved it. It was, it was such an amazing talk about going with the flow and, and following your creativity. Can you just share a little thumbnail of how he ended up where he ended up? Yeah. So my husband came also from a Middle Eastern Jordanian background. So his family also is very much about like money and survival. His dad was a bus driver for 16 years. So money was really tight for them. So it was all about like, how can I have my sons like create that financial security? So he actually graduated from college when he was 18 years old and became a realtor and became a top 30 under 30 on realtor magazine and was like doing the whole thing and realized that it wasn't bringing him joy. And what he really loved at that time was, was film. So he took the money that he invested into real from got from real estate invested into film at that time. It was Sin City two, I believe. And he was shadowing this producer that producer ended up scamming everyone and taking their money. And the movie was never shot. The real I was estate. I've never heard of Sin City two, but maybe. exactly, exactly. <laughs> and at the point. same time, there was the 2008 real estate collapse that, he lost everything in real estate. So here he went from top of the game, driving a Range Rover to broke, finding Craigslist roommates, like trying to do whatever he could to make money. He ended up getting a camera from someone that he worked at. Certain, you know, it's like at the mall, they're like, you should be a model. Like, let me take photos of you. <laughs> so we like started doing that kind of photography and then started to like learn more about photography. And then he was hired to be a photographer and graphic designer for this country music manager. And then he started traveling with this country music manager. And then this manager started to realize, okay, he's a much more than a photographer and graphic designer and started like mentoring him. And he started to learn more about music management and his childhood dream. Like he's someone that he never had money for music classes, but just like couldn't play six instruments just from picking them up. Like that's just the way that his brain computes. 
So he just started to learn everything about music management. And then when he was 25 years old, he approached this singer named Nadia Ali. Maybe you've heard of her. She was like famous kind of, the night I laid my eyes on you, felt everything around you move. Anyways, like she was big back then, sort of like trance music. And he proposed to manage her and began his management career. So now he manages 16 different artists, including Bacon, who's a producer that just produced six songs on the new Kendrick Lamar album and different DJs and producers. And now we're actually coming together to create my husband and I to create a creative center together. So a center that has music studios, podcast, event space, where you can do meditation, breath work, and then channel that vision into art and music. Whatever happened with your parents, did they come back around now that you're a published author and you know, you're super influential in this wellness space? It definitely took time, you know, like they would see my book and they're like, "Mm, you're still not really making good money or like, you know, they were kind of like waiting for the ball to drop of like, okay, she's going to try this book thing. And then she's going to, they also really wanted me to be a real estate agent. I think this is like the immigrant like go-to career. So they were like kind of waiting, but then they started to see like, okay, wow, she's actually like able to support herself. Oh, wow. She's actually like making an impact. And my mom actually was at that same book launch event. So even my mom started to come on some of my retreats and see it that now, like, honestly, probably last year was the first time I heard them say, we're proud of you. And now to everyone they meet, they're like, oh yeah, this whole thing, it was my idea, my support. They revised, I was going to say, they probably revised the whole past, right? Yeah. And then honestly, it was really hard writing about the story with them in the book, knowing that they would read it because they're very private people. And it's just an immigrant culture. You don't talk bad about the family. You don't share your family's secrets. So that was so challenging of like, how can I tell my story when it involves someone else and they're not going to like it? And it was this constant back and forth of like, okay, let me share my truth. But like, what would my dad's truth be? And it it did give me that like final point of healing to be able to write it from like a more non-biased perspective that him and his friends and everyone he knows is going to read it. And I felt like I could share why he felt the fear that he felt while at the same time being authentic with my experience through it all. Yeah. When I'm writing now and I'm having any sort of pushback from my friends or family, I say, you know, I'm a writer, right? So this is going to all be a part of the story. So you're going to be cast as the person who was the hater. Okay. You understand that, right? Okay, good. (laughs) And then they change their tube. (laughs) How are you thinking about success these days, Sarah? Obviously, it's not about money and all of that, but what is it about? Honestly, for me, and actually a few weeks ago, I was going through an existential crisis. (laughs) And I'm like, like, I feel so disconnected from community here. I feel like I'm just on my laptop all the time. Like, what did I build this for? And, you know, I have amazing students. But again, it's like, like, I wish I was here with you in person right now. It's just another level of connection. So I started to think back. I'm like, when was I the happiest? I was like, it was in Bali when I was just like able to go to a kirtan and then meet with people. And I feel like in our modern culture, we so need to plan, like, I'm going to meet you in one month at this time and like show up. And there's so much effort and work around just keeping friends. And I'm like, my highest experience is to just be able to live in a community. My husband's is not. <laughs> So we're like, okay, you don't want to move to Bali. I want to move to Bali. What do we do? And that's how this idea of this creative center came to be. Cause it's like community doesn't exist just in Bali. Someone in Bali chose to create 
yoga barn and the different forms of community, each and every one of us, we can create the texture of joy that we wished we could be experience. And I've just learned in my life, it's if you want something initiated, be the person to create it because chances are there are other people too, who want that same experience. They just haven't jumped first. Beautiful. And then since you mentioned your relationship, obviously there's no perfection in relationships, but what would you say is the secret to a healthy, successful, conscious marriage these days? Mm. I think really allowing each other be who you are. You know, when I first started dating Stephen seven years ago, we were in totally different worlds. Like he's in the EDM trap music world. And I was in the like hardcore vegan yogi, like vending at Wonderlust Festival world. So it was almost like our souls connected so deeply, but like our group of friends didn't, we didn't like to do the same thing, but we just kept accepting each other. And I would learn about his world. Like I've learned so much about music. And before I was like, you know, this mainstream music is putting low vibrations out into the world and don't listen to it. And like, and now I've realized I'm like, oh, the reason why Lil Nas X or, or WAP or these songs are so huge is because it's rebelling against a norm and it's speaking to people that they are the ones who are choosing it to go viral. So it's really allowed me to see culture in a new way outside of sometimes in the spiritual world, we think it's like, us against them. And there's these like people in control. And then I'm like, oh, I actually now I'm seeing the way that these artistic creative expressions are being made. And it's not from someone choosing to like lower the vibration of humanity, but it's like, that's just giving a voice to how people feel. So it's allowed me to step more into that. And now for him, he is a man bun now, which I'm very excited for. (laughs) And And he's found his own spiritual journey. That's not my own. Like he's very into psychedelics. He's very into Alan Watts. He's very into just a more non-dual, like masculine path. And I do believe just my influence in seeing my, his, my dedication to my spiritual practice is what allowed him to find his own. But I wasn't like, you need to ecstatic dance with me and shake and twerk. Like, that's not his pathway and that's not what it's going to look like. So really accepting each other, not trying to change one another and learning like this is someone that I love and they're different from me. Why are they different from me? And how can I be really curious about that? And how Mm -hmm. can I see spirituality through a new lens that doesn't look like the way that most people are marketing spirituality? I've always defined spirituality as being able to hold as many truths as possible in your awareness, right? Instead of seeing it as something that you do on a yoga mat or on a meditation cushion or in a church or some sacred place. What if everything was sacred, right? What if that was the presumption and the only opportunity is how do I find the connection between where I am and that sacredness of the experience? Mm -hmm. So final question for you. If you could go back to 21-year-old Sahara, graduating college, no prospects, not sure about your path, what words of wisdom would you whisper to her and her dreams stop trying to prove yourself i could have spent that energy that i was trying to prove and explain and get my parents and people to understand and just put that energy towards your dharma and define dharma your soul's purpose the big reason why you're here what's exciting for you which changes over time but continue to follow excitement are the breadcrumbs that are guiding us towards our dharma So there's always, no matter what age you were at, there's always an aspect of your dharma that you could be plugging into and and, and acting upon. 
Yes, because that experience feeds the next, you know, and someone's listening to this, they're like, well, I don't have a cool story like yours. It's like, well, what do your your 20 years in HR, what did that teach you? What are the gems Mm -hmm. that you got out of that? You know, I'm sure you've learned a lot about reading people's body language and facial expressions, seeing where they fit into a team and an organization. So there's never any time that has been wasted. There's never been any mistakes. All of your obstacles are your soul's unique curriculum to help you embody that dharma. One of my other favorite podcast guests, Bronnie Ware, she worked in palliative care for many years as a part-time job while she was trying to get her music career off the ground in Australia. And then years and years later, she went through this deep period of depression and suicidal ideation, and she was trying to make ends meet. And she went to some conference and there was a blogger there and the blogger said, you know, just start a blog and start doing listicles, five things, this three things that, and she wrote down five regrets of the dying because that's what she had experienced as a palliative care worker. And that became viral and turned into a book and all the whole thing, her whole path, but she had been on her path the whole time. She just didn't realize. (laughs) And I referenced that book all the time because the number one regret was something along the lines of, I wish I did what I loved. Yeah. Beautiful. Sahara, thank you so much for coming on to the show and for sharing the story behind the story. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I really got to dive in. I've never shared that story about the motorcyclist in India and been able to like drop in with such detail. Mm -hmm. Wow. Your curiosity is incredible. Like the way that you're able to like really follow a story and find the things and be the voice for your listener of like, Hmm, they might be thinking about this. Let me be that person. Like, Dude, next Oprah right here. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And, and you got an amazing podcast too. I listened to several of your episodes. It's the highest self podcast. You got some amazing books. I'm going to have discover- you on and drill you. I'm going to be like, like, tell me. Yeah, I want to come on. Yes. And discover your Dharma was great because I took your, I think you said it's a 90 second dosha quiz. And it turns out I'm Bata as well. So you and I have that also. Yes. In common. I think I marked A for every single one, actually. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and it definitely resonated. And so I'm excited to, that that's in the world so that if anybody wants to get, and I'm sure your, your idiot's guide experience talking about purpose and dharma helped you to write in a more accessible way in all of your other books and offerings into the world. So you definitely have that down. You have that accessibility. That's beautiful. Your social media is beautiful. It goes from stories of you listening to your intuition at the Boston Marathon to you twerking to you at, you know, a hip hop concerts. It's awesome. You're just an awesome person. You have a great presence. You're definitely leaving the world better than you found it. And I'm just happy to be able to call you an associate and a friend. So thanks again for coming on. Well, thank you so much for this beautiful conversation and for really dropping in. I think that like this is so missing in the world and that's what we're craving to really dive deeper and understand why people are the way that they are and get curious. And I feel like so often on podcasts, it can be highlight reels. So Mm -hmm. I love how you're like, okay, let's start with the things that people might not know about or just the backstory, because I bet there are many people, you know, and I'll, I'll share that while I was going through these experiences, I would tell myself, I'm just at the shitty part of my memoir right now. (laughs) And that was the thing that would drive me. I'm like, I'm just at the part I'm going to write about where like it all hit the fan and I learned from there. So thank you for asking questions on the shitty part of the memoir. Thank you so much. Thank you again for tuning into my conversation with Sahara Rose. You can pick up her books everywhere books are sold. 
And you should definitely follow Sahara on social media at I am Sahara Rose. And of course, we'll put links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to The Light Watkins Show, we've got an incredible archives of interviews with other luminaries like Ed Milette, director Ava DuVernay, uh, spoken word artist Saul Williams, internet poet Young Pueblo, author Stephen Pressfield, chef Mark Samuelson, and many others who share how they found their path and their purpose. You can also search interviews by subject matter at lightwatkins.com slash show. You'll see a drop-down menu at the top of the page where you can search past episodes by specific subjects like people who've taken leaps of faith, people who've overcome financial struggles, people who've navigated health challenges, etc. And again, that is at lightwatkins.com slash show. Also, you can now watch these podcast interviews on YouTube. If you haven't done so yet, just go to YouTube, search Light Watkins Podcast. You'll see all of the episodes come up, and that way you can put a face to the story. And if you are the type that likes to hear all the mistakes and the false starts and the chit-chat at the beginning and the end of the episodes, then you should become a member of the Happiness Insiders, which is my online community. And there you can listen to the unedited versions of all of my podcasts a day before they actually publish. And not only that, but you also have access to my 108-day meditation challenge, as well as my 108-day movement challenge and other challenges and masterclasses. And also one way to show support for this podcast is to leave a rating or review, which you can do really quickly by glancing at your device. And if you're looking at the Apple podcast app, you just click the name of the podcast, Light Watkins Show, and then that'll show you some previous episodes. You scroll down past six or seven previous episodes. You'll see a section with five blank stars. Just tap on the star all the way on the right. And that way you leave me a five star rating. Of course, if you enjoy the show, thank you very much in advance for that. And otherwise, I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you taking a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting in your intuition. Keep following your heart. Keep taking those leaps of faith. It's super important. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, hey, I believe in you. Thank you so much and have a great day. For nearly two decades, I've been showing people how to take all of the guesswork out of their meditation practice. If you've been complaining about monkey mind and how antsy your body is in meditation, I invite you to my next meditation retreat where we'll spend a few days together and I'll personally show you how to go beyond the monkey mind feeling and have the deepest, most enjoyable meditations ever. For more information, go to lightwatkins.com and I look forward to hopefully meeting you in person and showing you everything I know about how to meditate with delight. That's lightwatkins.com for more information. Okay, back to the show.